Hey all, before launching in today, I'd just like to give a big shout out and recommendation to friend of the show and fellow history podcast, the French History Podcast. Join Dr. Gary Girard as he explores all aspects of France's three million years of amazing people and events, from Lascaux cave paintings and mastodons to Robespierre, Macron, and everything in between. Format-wise, it's very similar to, well, me. Chronological, episodic, about a half hour long, but with more baguettes, wine, and guillotines. Moreover, aside from the main series, be sure to check out his guest episodes with world-renowned scholars doing their specialty, which can be anything from 17th century pirates to medieval Jewish merchants and even 19th century Parisian cemetery politics. Once again, that's the French History Podcast by Dr. Gary Girard. Don your beret and earphones, pair it with a nice pan au chocolat and a glass of your finest Cabernet. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the History of China. Episode 249, Nerhachi, Part 1. The Diamond Lao. The deal was for the diamond. Now, you bring me Nerhachi. My pleasure. Who on earth is this Nerhachi? Here he is. This Nerhachi's a real small guy. Inside are the remains of Nerhachi, first emperor of Manchu dynasty. Welcome home, old boy. <laughs> and now, you give me the diamond. Are you trying to develop a sense of humor, or am I going deaf? What's that? Antidote. To what? To the poison you just drank, Dr. Jones. <laughs> From Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Last time, we looked at the so-called three campaigns of the Ming Dynasty against the Miao, the Mongols, and the Japanese, respectively. And while they could not have known it, this would prove to be the last of Ming's large-scale offensives, or at least punitive, military expeditions. This is, of course, not to say that it will be the last battles facing the Imperial House of Zhu. No, far from it. And so today, we're going to start on that long, strange tale that will result in the brilliant dynasty's final overthrow. To do so, we must venture far away from Beijing and the towers of its forbidden city once more, and in a direction we've not traveled in quite a long while. To the far northeastern reaches beyond the Great Wall, to that cold and harsh region between what is today Korea and Russia, though today it's divided between three provinces, Heilongjiang, Jilin, and Liaoning, but it's still commonly known as Manchuria. From Gertrude Rothley, quote, The Liao Valley is the heartland of a region known as Manchuria, a place where forest, steppe, and agricultural lands overlap. In the 16th century, this region extended southward from the Amur River, or Heilongjiang, and included a Ming administrative area in the lower Liao Valley, on the Liaodong Peninsula. In the east, it reached to the Tatar Strait, the Sea of Japan, and the Korean border. In the west, it connected to what in the 20th century was Zhahar, extending northwest from the Great Wall to the Mongolian pasturelands on the slopes of the greater Qinggan Mountains, or Da Xinganling, because most Chinese activities in Manchuria were carried out via the Rehar, this area, particularly the southern portion, also known as Laoshi, was of great importance to the history of Manchuria. End quote. This was a thoroughly wild frontier, at least as far as the Ming were concerned. 
Though as early as 1412, during the reign of the Yongle Emperor, the dynasty had nominally established the Northeast as a military commandery centered about Yiling County. In truth, that counted for very little. The Chinese had only occasional presence in the region, and generally left almost everything up to autonomous local control. Jianzhou was so named by the Ming, who asserted at least a nominal military suzerainty over the region and its people. Theoretically, this made the people who would become known as the Manchus an auxiliary wing of the Ming Imperial Army. But, quote, such recognition, however, had very little substance. The Ming Empire had never clearly defined the territorial boundaries of the commandery, and there was no evidence that the orderly succession of the tribal chieftains was kept under close imperial supervision, save during perhaps the very early years. End quote. In terms of the people themselves, the term Manchu only came into common usage after 1635, and its meaning and origins remain obscure. Some theories link it to the Mahayana Bodhisattva, Manjushri. Others theorize it to be a compound of the word for strong, or manga, and the word for arrow, or ju. Whatever its true etymology, the demonym it replaced helps us see that, far from coming out of nowhere to sweep the Ming edifices away, the Manchu were just a slight rebranding of an age-old foe of the Chinese, the Jurchen. Yes, indeed, those descendants of the very same Jin dynasty that had ruthlessly driven the Song from northern China and then harried them for a further century until they were themselves subsumed in the 1230s by the rising Mongol Empire. In fact, the initial name of the empire we'll see established here today harkened directly back to its Jurchen origins, later Jin. Before that name change, the people to whom Nurhachi was born were known as the Jinzhou Jurchen, of which he was a member of the Aizengyoro clan. Aizengyoro is a compound signifier, with the first word, Aizen, being the Manchu term of Jin, or gold, itself the imperial dynastic household. Gyoro, then, referred to the specific region of the northeast they hailed from, Yiling County, some 240 meters northeast of Harbin. The Jianzhou Chen were, according to our Chinese sources, one of the three major divisions at the time. Them, the Haixi Chen, and the Ye, or Wild Chen. though the Chinese at times still collectively refer to all Chens as the Ye Ren, or, in effect, wildlings. The lifestyles of the Chen were as highly variable as the lands they occupied, but their respective names give us a clue as to their primary ways of making a living. Unsurprisingly, the so-called Wild Jurchen, living furthest from China in the northern and western reaches of Manchuria, maintained an overall more nomadic and steppe lifestyle as, quote, hunters and fishermen who supplemented their economy by pig raising and, where possible, migratory agriculture. Mongolian influences were considerable, especially in the west, end quote. The Haishi Jurchen, who primarily lived in modern Heilongjiang, east of the Noni River, and around modern Harbin, cultivated crops toward the east, while relying more on pastoralism in the west near the Mongolian borders. The Jinzhou Jurchen, meanwhile, concentrated along the Mudan River and in the shadow of the Long White Mountain, known as Sangyan Alin in Manchu, or Changbai Shan in Mandarin, in modern Jilin province. They, quote, hunted for food and furs, fished, and engaged in agriculture. They also gathered pearls and ginseng and were proficient in spinning and weaving, end quote. As has long been the case, this region was anything but ethnically homogenous. Living alongside the Jurchuns were Chinese, Koreans, Mongols, and any number of other peoples of the Northeast. Culturally, the Jurchun shared many aspects of culture with their nomadic and semi-nomadic brethren of the steppe and near-steppe. This included a deep affinity and pride in horsemanship, archery, falconry, large-scale and ritualized game hunting, shamanism, 
And perhaps that most immediately noticeable feature of the Manchus, the Q hairstyle, in which the men would shave the front of their heads completely bald while growing the back out into long, braided queues. As the Manchu population continued to grow, the Ming government utilized that time-tested strategy of the Chinese when dealing with their neighboring foreign populations. That is to say, give them girls and keep them busy fighting each other, also known as yi yi yi. Use the barbarians to control the barbarians. From Huang, quote, In reality, internal warfare among the Manchu tribes was frequent. The pattern usually started with marriage ties and alliances and ended with betrayals and annexations. This is a situation which the local Chinese commanders had not hesitated to use to their advantage. Unable to fend off the pressure of the growing Manchu population, they usually sought to give aid to a weaker chieftain in his contest for power with a stronger one. End quote. Just keep them constantly stabbing each other in the back and seeking revenge, and they'll never realize that you're the one actually pulling the strings. Into all this semi-controlled chaos was born Nerhachi as of 1559, making him about four years older than our main man, the Wanli Emperor. Now, a quick note about his name. I've heard it pronounced both with a soft C, as in Nerhasi, and with a hard CH, as in Nerhachi. And given that the second is more in line with the Mandarin transliteration, and also the pronunciation used by the villainous Lao Che in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that's the one I'm going to go with, but your mileage may vary. His parents both seem to have come from powerful ruling families, ensuring a strong claim to the chieftainship. As it so happens, they also moonlighted as undercover contacts and informants of the Ming Dynasty general Li Chengliang, though this was only revealed after both Nerhachi's father and grandfather were mistakenly killed by Li's troops in a raid against another leader at war against the Ming in 1582. After their identities were discovered by the Chinese commander, he sent for the young Nerhachi, then about 23, and, quote, gave him comfort and treated him well, end quote. In time, at least some records indicate that Nerhachi may have been formally adopted by General Li as his son, which was actually a fairly common practice at the time. Within a year of his father's death, Nerhachi began the process of assembling his own base of power that would in time become the core of his nascent empire. To call it a humble beginning would be putting it rather mildly. In fact, later in his life, Nerhachi would look back on those early days and claim that his followers only had 13 sets of armors to share between them. With these sets of armor, in a small contingent of loyal retainers, Nerhachi began that most ancient of step quests, seeking revenge for the murder of his father and grandfather. Having accepted Li Chengliang's explanation that, for his part, it was just an unfortunate accident, Nerhachi instead focused his vengeance on the man he blamed, another Manchu chieftain called Nikan Wailan. From Rothley, quote, Due to the untimely deaths of his grandfather and father, Nerhachi, like Genghis Khan and Tamerlane, got an early start on his own career. He lost his mother when he was young, and for a time, he made a living by collecting ginseng and cones and selling them in the Fushun market, end quote. Under Li Chengliang's tutelage, while living with a general, he learned to speak, read, and write Chinese, as well as gain at least some basis of understanding of Chinese history and military strategy from reading novels. Nerhachi began his campaign against Nikon Wailan by asserting that, by right of vengeance, he could act with impunity from Ming laws against his family's killer, and went so far as to demand that the Ming authorities hand Nikon over to him to mete out justice. The Ming government of Liao Dong sympathized with him, at least to a degree. Returning his father and grandfather's corpses to him for burial, 
along with issuing him 30 patents that gave him the right to succeed his grandfather as the leader of the Gyoro clan. Yet they still refused to hand over Nikon Wailan, and even went so far as to threaten to make Nikon Khan of all the Jurchun should Narhasi keep up his demands. Even worse, Narhachi's uncles and granduncles were unwilling to submit to his Ming-granted authority over them, and made threats against his life. In spite of disapproval and threats on his life from his own relatives, Narhachi gained a few friends and went to war against Nikon Wailan. When Nikon fled and sought refuge with the Ming, Narhachi turned his attention to subduing the neighboring Jianzhou regions. By 1586, Narhachi's prestige was such that the Ming authorities no longer refused his demands that Nikon Wailan be killed. But by then, his goal was far beyond eliminating just a personal enemy. In 1588, he subjugated the Wangya tribe and received the submission of the Donggo tribe in the southeast. A year later, he attacked smaller Jurchen tribes in the vicinity of the Long White Mountain and along the Yalu River. But before he could subdue them, the Yeha demanded his attention in the north. Counting on Ming support, the Yeha demanded that Nurhachi cede some of his territory to them. Nurhachi rejected their demand and prepared for a conflict. At the same time, he also attended to his own relationship with the Ming government. Officially, he still considered himself a guardian of the Ming border and a local representative of imperial Ming power. In 1589, he endeared himself to the Ming by rescuing several kidnapped Chinese and delivering them back to Ming authorities, an act which earned him the title of Assistant Commissioner-in-Chief. In 1590, he led his first of eight tribute missions of Jurchen chiefs to Beijing. Two years later, he offered the Ming his assistance in their defense of Korea against the Japanese invasion under Toyotomi Hideyoshi. The Ming did not accept his offer, but in 1595, awarded Nurhachi the title of Dragon Tiger General, or Long Hu Jianjun, an honor which at the same time, undoubtedly to balance the scales out, they also bestowed on the Hara leader, Mangabulu. Seemingly paradoxically, the very deeds that earned him rewards from the Ming aroused fear from the neighboring Hulun Jurchen. In 1593, a force of nine allies, including the four Hulun tribes, the Korchin Mongols, and tribes from the Long White Mountain region attacked Nurhachi's Manchus. The allies were defeated, and the result was that the Jurchen chiefs no longer dared to oppose Nurhachi outright, and instead started offering him their sisters and daughters in marriage. These marriage alliances, however, did not buy them peace. After conquering the Long White Mountain tribes, Nurhachi's forces vanquished the Hara between 1599 and 1601, killing his rival, Dragon Tiger General, in the process. Nurhachi conquered the Huifa in 1607, the Ula in 1613, while the Yeha remained independent until 1619. Nurhachi sent numerous expeditions to the wild Jurchuns in northern Manchuria. The end of Ula independence in 1613 opened up the region of the Warka, who until then had been within the Ula sphere of influence and used the Ula areas as a transshipment center for their furs. The wild Jurchuns were ruled by many independent small chiefdoms, and it took many expeditions and campaigns throughout the pre-1644 period until they were finally incorporated within the new regime. Neither Narhachi nor his son and heir, Hong Taiji, occupied the northern territories at any point, but military expeditions to those areas regularly returned with prisoners and surrendered people. The wild Jurchuns who stayed behind served the Manchus by bringing tribute to the eventual Qing court. After defeating the Ula in 1613, Nurhachi made several attempts to win the allegiance of the Mongols in preparation for confrontation with the Ming. Bordering Nurhachi's state to the northwest were the Korchins, the Five Khalkhas, and the Chahars. 
The Korchian Mongols participated in the nine-member alliance against Narhachi in 1593, but soon thereafter concluded a pact of friendship with him, and then over the years entered countless marriage alliances with the Manchu royal house. The Korchian's loyalty ultimately earned them the resentment of the Chahars, but also Manchu protection against their attacks. Narhachi was eager to establish friendly relations with the Khalkhas and win their support for campaigns against the Ming or at least to ward off attacks from that front. The five Kalka Mongols had exchanged women with Narhachi as early as 1594, and groups of Kalka Mongols came to submit to the Manchus throughout Narhachi's reign. In 1607, a Kalka group honored Narhachi with the title of Honored Great Khan, or Kundalen Khayan. However, most of the Mongols who submitted at this point were just minor chiefs. The more powerful among the five Kalkas refused to cooperate with Narhachi. They depended on Ming markets to exchange their horses and furs for grain and daily necessities, and they received liberal payments from the Ming in order to keep them loyal. Therefore, when the Ming government was forced to close the Mongol markets after Nurhachi's attack on Liaodong, the five Khalkas came to the aid of the Ming, hoping to restore their trading privileges and continue to receive silver for their cooperation. Nurhachi's statements referring to the five Khalkas reflect an ambivalence about the Mongol relationship. In 1619, when proposing joint military action with the five Kalka Mongols, Nurhachi chose to stress the similarities between the Manchus and Mongols and their dissimilarities with the Koreans and Chinese. He wrote, quote, The languages of the Chinese and Koreans are different, but their clothing and way of life is the same. It is the same with us Manchus and Mongols. Our languages are different, but our clothing and way of life is the same. End quote. Yet only four months later, on an occasion when no alliance was sought, and when, on the contrary, the Mongols had invaded the territory recently conquered by the Manchus, the emphasis is on dissimilarity. Quote, Why do you Mongols take the grain, people, horses, oxen, and everything from the Yeha? Did you Mongols help us destroy their towns? Did you help us work their fields? You Mongols raise livestock, eat meat, and wear pelts. My people till the fields and live on grain. We too are not one country, and we have different languages. End quote. Thus, the relationship between Nurhachi and the Mongols at this time seemed to be one of mutual opportunism and not a solidarity based on cultural affinity. Even without a firm commitment to the Mongols across the border, Nurhachi prepared for a break with the Ming. For about 20 years, he had maintained his tribute relationship with the Ming court. But as his power grew, the relationship became strained, and border conflicts multiplied. In 1608, border transgressions by the Chinese ginseng diggers led to an agreement which defined a boundary that the Ming subjects were prohibited from crossing for the purposes of gathering ginseng or pearls for the cultivating of land. In 1611, Nurhachi arrived in Beijing for his last tribute mission, though he seems to have sent a final delegation as late as 1615. Even though the Manchus needed tribute gifts and trades to ameliorate the increasingly difficult economic conditions to come, Nurhachi proclaimed his independence from the Ming in 1616. Three years later, he declared war by issuing a list of grievances and attacking Fushun. By this time, the idea of a Manchu state and recognition of it outweighed the value of Ming imperial gifts. Nurhachi's unification of the Jurchuns depended on his ability to deploy his new manpower. Making use of the customary term company, or niru, for the units under which Jurchen men were organized for hunts and wars, Nurhachi in 1601 subdivided his followers, including the newly captured Hara, into companies, 
which was each headed by a company commander, or Nero E. Ejen. He then joined several companies to form four banners, in Manchu, Gusa, and in Chinese, Qi, each flying a different color, yellow, white, red, and blue. Building on the traditional clan system of squads and companies, and an even earlier system of the Jin Dynasty, the early banner system, or Ba Qi, did not disturb the pre-existing social units. As tribes, clans, or villages of Durchans, Mongols, or Chinese submitted to the Manchus, each unit remained intact and their leaders retained authority over their people. Gradually, tribal and village units were transferred into new artificial units of more or less equal size. This provided Nurhachi with an organizational system which was expandable as new manpower became available, and which was not restricted by clan size or clan loyalties. Unlike earlier uses of squads and companies, the new banner system was not temporary organizations for specific tasks. They were permanent organizational units. During the early years of his rule, Nurhachi shared power with his brother, Surhachi, and his eldest son, Chuyan. Though Nurhachi retained most of the decision-making authority, his brother and son enjoyed a certain autonomy and maintained their own outside alliances, often strengthened by marriage ties. Surhachi's personal relationship with the Hoifa leader presented a problem when the Manchus annexed the Hoifa and killed their leader and son. Noting Surhachi's lack of enthusiasm for this military action, Nurhachi in 1609 asserted his authority over his brother by claiming that Surhachi held his position not by hereditary right, but by the generosity of the Khan himself. Two years later, Nurhachi had his brother and two of his brother's sons put to death. Surhachi's death left Chuyan as second-in-command and the likely heir apparent. Unhappy with the state of affairs, Chuyan's brothers, Daishan, Mongoltai, and Hong Taiji, joined with their cousin, Amin, to sow suspicion in their father's mind against Chuyan. In 1613, Nurhachi placed Chuyan in confinement and two years later had his son executed. Having freed himself from his co-rulers with hereditary rights, Nurhachi began limiting the power of the other Beylas. He first turned to five long-term companions-in-arms who owed their positions to him, not to their birth. These five grand ministers had direct, individual access to Nurhachi and were to advise him and see to the execution of his commands. All communication to and from the Khan, including those to his Beylas, had to pass through these grand ministers. This arrangement was the forerunner of the series of short and long-term official and unofficial Beylas and Ambans Council in which the interests of the aristocrats and the bureaucracy would eventually merge. For further empowerment, Nurhachi gave each of the five grand ministers one of his daughters in marriage, making them not just ambans, or high officials, but also sons-in-law, and therefore quasi-aristocrats. Nurhachi also employed other high-level advisors, among them scholarly, multilingual experts who held the title of Baksi. Ardani Baksi helped develop the Manchu script, served as interpreter of heavenly omens, proclaimed calls for surrender, wrote high-level communications, and recorded the Khan's laws. Two other advisors, Kirchan and Dahai, both multilingual Manchus, also served under Nurhachi, though they became more prominent under his successor, Hong Taiji. Dahai translated numerous Chinese works into Manchu, among them the Ming Penal Code. In order to administer the nation's law, Nurhachi created a three-tiered system, he appointed ten supreme judges who tried cases and then referred their decisions to the grand ministers, who in turn reviewed the evidence and the law, issued their own opinions, and passed the cases on to the Beylas. Thus, the five grand ministers, 
who as advisors to the Khan were functionally equal to, if not above, the Belas, were subordinate to the Belas in the judicial process. Every five days, Mirhachi himself came to the seat of government and held court, at which time the plaintiffs reiterated their charges and the Khan reviewed the previous findings. In 1615, Nurhachi reorganized the banner system and in the process standardized the strength of the companies. He collapsed the earlier smaller companies into 200 units of 300 men each and appointed two assistant commanders to help the company commander with overseeing the four squads. Each squad was led by an adjutant with a village driver, or Gasan Bosoku, as assistants. For military duties, five companies moved together as a regiment. Five regiments, in turn, formed a banner, led by a banner commander, who was assisted by two vice commanders, and who reported to a banner Beila above him. All banner Beilas received the highest princely rank of fiefdom, with the four elders among them also being called the four senior Beilas. Those of Nurhachi's sons and grandsons who did not have a banner command retained their title of Beila, but as a member of one of the banners, each served under a banner Beila. Nurhachi set aside a certain number of companies to serve the Belas and Ambans as bondservant companies, and he and the Manchu Belas also had their own personal guard. In time, these personal guards grew into units of elite troops within the overall banner system. Nurhachi's personal guard, the White Guard, protected the person of the Khan, but also could be deployed in times of war. The other personal guards, the Red Guards, functioned within the individual banners. Like the Jurchun's traditional clan organization, Nurhachi's banner system combined military, social, and economic functions, including the entire population, and retained a fair degree of collective decision-making. In time, the banner system served to eliminate the roles of former tribal aristocrats as they lost their status as Beylas and were transformed into military officers who drew their authority and prestige from their rank in the banner system. During the early years of his career, Nurhachi pursued power through wealth, which he needed to attract and reward his followers. Extensive contacts with Koreans and Chinese introduced new ideas and gave him new goals. The Jurchens knew from first-hand experience that the Ming government viewed trade less as an exchange of goods for mutual benefit than as an integral part of their tributary relations. Such relations manifested the emperor's political power and moral superiority over non-Chinese people. Aware that both the Ming and Korean governments considered the Jurchens politically as well as culturally inferior, Nurhachi, an aspiring leader, rethought his goals and decided that being a Ming official in charge of the Jianzhou Guard was not good enough. In 1616, he held a formal ceremony to announce his accession to the throne. He assumed the title of Brilliant Emperor, Nurturer of All Nations, or Garen Gurunbe, Ujire, Gungian Han, inaugurated his own calendar, and, in Chinese fashion, created a reign title. In Manchu, Akwa'i Fulinga, or Mandated by Heaven, in Chinese, Tianming, Heavenly Mandate. The Manchu version of the reign title was inscribed on the first of the Manchu's ever made coins. Besides elevating Nurhachi personally above his status, he also held as wise prince, that is Bela, or honored great Khan. His new titles and reign name were a declaration of independence from the Ming, and a statement that he considered his new state a dynasty in the making. Even before the 1616 ceremony, Nurhachi had, at least informally, started using the term Aisin, or Jin, for his country 
alluding to the Jin Dynasty, which had ruled North China in the 12th century. After his break with the Ming, Nurhaci's communications with the Ming and Korea would bear the signature heavenly mandated Khan of Jin, or Akwa'i Fulinga Aisin Gurunhani Doro. As far as Nurhaci was concerned, he was no longer the Ming government's assistant commissioner in chief of the Janzhou Left Guard, a title that he'd used since 1589. To spread the idea that the heavenly mandate was shifting toward Nurhaci and away from the Ming emperor, Nurhaci interpreted unusual occurrences of lights in the sky as heavenly omens of an impending change. Unusual lines of lights in the sky appeared in 1612, 1614, and 1615, but the notion that an emperor is endowed by heaven and received heaven's mandate or approval or disapproval was adopted with zeal when Nurhaci started to move into Liaodong. During 1618, an overwhelming number of such heavenly signs allowed Manchus and Chinese alike to become used to the idea that a dynastic change might be nearing. Lines of light in the sky appeared nearly every month, once staying for the length of an entire month, by such reports. Along with the heavenly mandate, went the notion that a benevolent ruler would attract people from afar. History provided ample evidence that non-Chinese people felt attracted to China and settled within its borders. The Manchus considered it proof that they qualified as a new dynasty because the direction of attraction was now reversed. Quote, There is no precedent for Chinese people going over to another country, but because they have heard that we take good care of our people, they have come to us to submit. End quote. Nurhaci was not shy about trying to increase the submission rate. In 1622, he warned Chinese fleeing before his troops in the Guangning area, quote, Come out of hiding and down from the mountains because even if you go inside the Shanghai Pass, my great army will enter the pass in 1623. As it would turn out, Nurhaci did not enter the Shanghai Pass in 1623, nor 1624. Domestic troubles kept him at home. Over the course of his expansion, Nurhaci supported his imperial vision as well as his military objectives by repeatedly moving his home base. In 1603, he had left his first residence, the Old Hill, or Fe'ala, and moved to Hetsu'ala, only eight li to the north. Hetsu'ala had a better water supply, and equally important, it was the former residence of his grandfather, Gyaokanga, whose title Nurhaci had inherited. After occupying Liaodong, Nurhaci moved his base to Jiefan in 1619, to Sarhu in 1620, and Liaoyang in 1621, and to Shenyang in 1625. Each time, he consolidated his previous conquests and moved closer to his next target. To Nurhaci, the strategic value of these moves was obvious. When the Beylas disagreed, he admonished them, urging them to, quote, look at the larger picture of establishing the great enterprise, end quote. And so Nurhaci is established, he is on the move, and he is aiming southward toward the beating heart of Ming, China. Next time, we will pick up there and see where the fates will him to go next. And as always, thanks for listening.